It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This past October, we pulled into Rose Lawn Memorial Park in Terre Haute, Indiana. We were there to visit the grave of Jane Freet. And we weren't alone. Retired Indiana State Police Major Jim Kramer went along with us. Like Jane, he's originally from Terre Haute. His parents are buried in another cemetery not too far away. The grass was brown from the frost, and the leaves on the trees were falling. We didn't immediately find Jane's grave, so we split up to examine the names on the stones. After a few minutes of searching, we found her resting place. She lies near a tree alongside her baby brother and her parents. It's haunting to see the familiar name and date right there, carved in stone on a grave. 
We visited Jane just before the 42nd anniversary of her death. 42 years, she and the other victims in the Burger Chef murders have waited for answers. We hope they won't have to wait 42 years more. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And we're the Murder Sheet. We'll be taking a multi-part look into the Burger Chef murders. We'll be presenting you with a new theory about what happened each week as part of our mini-series, You Never Can Forget. On a weekly basis, you're going to hear from figures you've never heard from before. You're going to hear about facts that you've never heard before. And hopefully, you'll walk away with a better understanding of the sheer complexity of this awful crime. We don't just rely on what we've been told or what we've read. We have worked this case ourselves. We decided to do this podcast so we can tell you what we've learned and even clear up a few misconceptions. In this mini-series, we will give you the top theories about this crime. After we're finished covering the Burger Chef case, the murder sheet will continue to investigate different restaurant-related homicides for the rest of Season 1. We're the murder sheet, and this is You Never Can Forget the Remembrance. began this podcast on November 17th, 2020, exactly 42 years to the day that four young employees vanished from the Burger Chef in Speedway, Indiana. In this episode, we're going to talk about three things. What we think are the strongest and weakest theories in the case, what we think law enforcement needs to do in order to potentially solve the murders, and why all of this still matters. To begin, Let's recap some of the theories we've discussed this season and offer our own analysis of them. We'll even be honest about the areas where we personally disagree with one another. We started our season by devoting two episodes to the story of Alan Pruitt, who, as you'll recall, stood outside the Burger Chef restaurant as the kids were being abducted and was therefore in a position to see everything. He told authorities the perps were Jeff Reed and Tim Willoughby, a man who had allegedly been murdered half a year earlier. We cover this in great detail in The Creek. Pruitt is a deeply frustrating witness. 
Because both an unrelated witness and his best friend placed him at the scene, though, both of us are convinced that he was definitely at the restaurant that night, and therefore could theoretically have seen everything he claimed. He is therefore, potentially, the single most important witness in the entire case. The problem, of course, is that he has changed the details of his story so many times that he has severe credibility problems. So, while he could have seen what he claimed, he also very well could have seen something else entirely, or even nothing at all. When a person alters his story as often as Pruitt has, it makes it difficult, if not impossible, to believe anything he says. I have some problems with the details of the story he offered in his statement. For instance, he says he saw Mark being violently slammed against the side of the kidnapper's van before leaving the restaurant. Based on descriptions of Mark's wounds, I don't necessarily see him being beaten at the restaurant. I can't entirely agree with that. If the top of Mark's head was smashed into the van, I don't believe it would cause injuries that are inconsistent with what we've been told are in the photographs. I am not ready to say that Mark was not hurt at the restaurant, just that his more severe injuries likely happened later. In the backbone, we discussed what Pruitt said happened the day after the murders. According to him, Jeff Reed and Tim Willoughby lured him into a van, drove him to a secluded wooded area, and then tried to kill him, forcing him to run for his life. On the surface, that story seems wild and even outlandish. Something out of a thriller. I have a lot of doubts about that incident unfolding like that. But I can't say it's definitely not true. The bigger question here is whether or not we believe it's plausible that Jeff Reed and Tim Willoughby could have committed the murders. We do know from multiple sources that Reed told several people after the murders that he was the guilty man. Of course, we don't know what, if anything, Willoughby may have told people after the crime because he was allegedly deceased at that time. The key question there is, do we believe Tim Willoughby was in fact murdered months before the Burger Chef murders? Frankly, we go back and forth on that question. However, we both find the statement from the woman who said she saw Tim in the Avon area, alive and healthy, just a couple of weeks before the murders, to be highly credible. And we both agree that Karen Tucker's statement describing the supposed killings of Tim and his girlfriend Marianne contains details that are difficult to believe. If Tim was alive at the time of the murders and was complicit in them, it is likely he fled to a southern state such as Tennessee or Florida. Authorities there would have little reason or incentive to look for him, as he was, at the time, regarded as nothing more than a minor car thief. He could, theoretically, even be alive today. Our next episodes, The Tank and The Confessions, focused on Donald Forrester, the man who told Marion County Sheriff investigators that he was responsible for the deaths of the four kids. It is difficult to prove a negative, and so therefore we cannot say with certainty that Forrester did not commit these crimes. But, if Forrester was guilty, then he was a tactical genius who played intricate 4D chess with the police, manipulating them with false information in a successful bid to make a prosecution all but impossible. That seems unlikely. The odds are instead that he bore no responsibility for the Burgershef murders 
and that overzealous or inexperienced investigators who were in over their heads inadvertently fed him information, which he used to concoct plausible-sounding confessions. We feel strongly that Forrester was, however, a monstrous man capable of great acts of violence against women. We believe it is fair to look at him as a suspect in any unsolved rapes or disappearances of women that occurred in areas where he frequented. That, rather than the Burger Chef murders, are the sort of crimes we all should be looking at him for. After Forrester, we covered the robbers. This is the theory that the murders were committed by a robbery gang that had been operating in the area. This gang had been targeting Burger Chef restaurants. There wasn't much violence associated with their other crimes, aside from what appeared to be an accidental shooting of a clerk. But, in this instance, the theory goes, something went wrong, and the decision was made to eliminate the four Burger Chef employees. As we outlined in the episode, there was a great deal of circumstantial evidence that supports this hypothesis. Unfortunately, there is little direct evidence that does so. On the other hand, there is little evidence out there that would disprove or contradict this theory. Of course, if this theory is true, and it may very well be, then some of the men responsible for the murders are still alive and so may still face justice for what they did. For this reason, we would strongly encourage the investigators now working on this case to explore this angle and see if they can find more evidence that could help either prove or disprove it. Another figure we discussed was Terry, which is not his real name. This is the man who threw a loaded gun out the window of his car near the burger shop when he was stopped by police at about the same time as the abductions were occurring. We are obviously open to the idea that this man's presence near the crime with a loaded thirty-eight, which was the same caliber of weapon used in the murders, could simply be a remarkable coincidence. But this man's record shows that he was capable of violence, and he, like Pruitt, was definitely in the area at the time of the crime. We feel he deserves much more attention. We would be especially interested in getting more details about the time of the traffic stop. The employees were likely kidnapped no later than around 11.45 p.m. If the traffic stop happened around quarter to 12, then that seems highly significant. If the traffic stop occurred later, say around 12.15 a.m., then the incident seems less significant. In any case, he is, like some of the members of the robbery gang, a living suspect, and so we feel police should make an effort to track him down and speak with him. I'm particularly interested in Terry as a potential suspect in this case. I want more information on this guy, and I want to find him and ask him what happened that night. We also covered the brothers, Kevin Flemons and James Freet, two siblings of victims who some have long whispered may have been tied to the murders in some fashion. For us, Kevin Flemons seems a highly unlikely suspect although we don't want to rule anything or anyone out entirely. Kevin Flemons was an African-American. Our understanding is that his three co-conspirators in the 1981 murder of Adrian Brown were also African-Americans. If you believe George Nichols and his girlfriend, the teens who saw two men behind the Burger Chef shortly before the kidnappings, 
The perps were two white men. But there are circumstantial problems even without that witness sighting. In the African-American community around Indianapolis, Speedway was widely known as a racist town in 1978. Speedway police were known to target black drivers for traffic stops and tickets. What's more, the killers drove the victims down to a rural area in Johnson County, which was also known to be unfriendly to black people at that time. Why would Kevin Flemons have risked driving a vehicle full of victims down to an area where law enforcement might have pulled him over solely based on the color of his skin? Jimmy Freet seems like a far more interesting possibility, although there's little direct evidence against the man. If you find the witness sightings credible, he does resemble the bearded man, or at least he did in 1981. We've heard stories that indicate he may not have been especially protective of family members, and the records show he was having financial problems in the late 70s and early 80s. The biggest mark against Jimmy Freed is his 1981 arrest as part of a big cocaine ring. Is it possible that Jimmy Freed's activities prompted other criminals to target his sister Jane? Could he have recruited her to participate in the drug trade? We do wonder if Jimmy Freed could have had a hand in what happened in 1978, or at least carried guilty knowledge that could have helped investigators crack the case. It's fair to say, though, that his arrest on cocaine charges might have made a ripple through the criminal element in Indianapolis, prompting men like Pruitt and Forrester to tie him into their stories on the case. Speaking of major drug gangs, we also spoke about convicted Speedway bomber Brett Kimberlin, the Sons of Silence motorcycle gang, and the buttoned-up drug ring called The Company, in our episode called The Others. We are intrigued by the possibility that a large drug organization was behind the killings. There is no real evidence supporting this, but lots of conjecture from people familiar with the Indianapolis underworld of the 1970s. We'd be curious in knowing more about the different drug businesses that could have been connected to whatever happened. A lot of them seemed nonviolent, or at least not capable of a crime this egregious. We don't understand what would prompt a large drug ring to kidnap four employees from a restaurant. If some of the employees had been targets, why not just go after them when they were alone and vulnerable? And why would a savvy drug operation entrust such young people with enough money or drugs to lead to a situation resulting in murder? If the restaurant itself was a target, then we'd want to know what drug operation would have used such a business model. If a drug ring had been hiding contraband in the restaurant and found that it had gone missing, it might make sense that they'd panic and kidnap all of the employees who were on duty that night. Highly respected Indianapolis news reporters Skip Hess and Paul Byrd reported that the burger chef in Speedway was a drug front. They even said that police had investigated the ring in the months before the killings. And in fairness, there did seem to be a ton of drug smuggling and car theft in Speedway and the west side of Indianapolis back then. The Byrd-Hess reports are very tantalizing but I can't help but feel they were fed a line by a trusted law enforcement source. Maybe their sources were investigators attempting to flush out information on the Burger Chef murders, and threw this scenario out there to see if it prompted any reaction. I'm also baffled that no one ever seemed to follow up on this lead in the press. 
Byrd and Hess were excellent journalists, and we know from talking to law enforcement that they were exceptionally well-sourced. I believe that what they printed about the Burgerchef drug ring could have been true. We'd love to talk to someone involved in investigating this angle. When it comes to theories about one of the kids being targeted specifically, there tend to be three separate camps. There are a few rumors out there about how Ruth Shelton may have been targeted because she once gave the police information related to something she had seen in connection to the Speedway bombings. She did indeed phone in a potential lead, but there was no indication that anyone associated with the bombings ever had the ability to identify her as a tipster. So those rumors don't seem very convincing. Many theories center Mark Flemons as the killer's intended target. Mark's friend and former co-worker Ginger Anderson told us that she switched shifts with Mark that night. It's possible that he inadvertently saw someone that he recognized during a robbery. Others hold that Mark was involved with drugs. There is some evidence for this. We've heard from police and co-workers that Mark likely smoked or even sold a bit of pot here and there. Then again, the possibility of Mark being so immersed in drug culture has some key problems. Press reports had the 16-year-old telling a friend that he feared for his life over a $7,000 drug debt. What kind of dealer would give a teenager such a significant line of credit? To be clear, that would be approximately $28,000 today, perhaps an inexperienced or irrational dealer. Other than that, the debt story only makes sense if Mark took some kind of drug or money cash that he came across, but there's no indication that something like that happened. There's a third possibility that's been raised regarding Mark, that there was a racist element to his murder. Mark was the only black victim of the four. He was killed by some kind of blow to the face that prompted him to fall back and choke on his own blood while unconscious. It seems possible that the more personalized violence that this kind of strike could have necessitated could have been motivated by racism, but it's impossible to say based on the information we currently have. There have also been rumors that Mark and Jane were in a relationship and that the killing was therefore racially motivated. That seems highly unlikely. We know that Jane was in a relationship at the time of the killings, and from what people have told us about her, it seems unlikely she would date a much younger employee. If the murders occurred because one of the employees was being targeted, we believe that Jane seems like a more logical target. She had family connections to the drug trade through her older brother, Jimmy Freed. Pruitt and Forrester, who, to be clear, have serious credibility issues, single her out as the target of the killings. Jane seems to have drifted away from her boyfriend and some friends in the year or so before the murders. And it seems possible that, out of isolation or desperation, she could have turned to selling drugs. But of course, there's nothing concrete pointing to that. We believe that it's also possible that none of the kids were being targeted, and that they were all simply at the wrong place at the wrong time. Regardless of whether any of them were involved with the drug trade, they are victims, and very young victims at that. None of them deserve to die, regardless of whatever was happening in their lives. So that's where we personally stand on each of the issues raised in this mini-series. There's so much information out there, but in some ways, it feels like we're barely below the surface in this case. Let's take a quick break from the Murder Sheet Presents, You Never Can Forget, 
to tell you about a podcast investigating yet another unforgettable crime. The Orange Tree is a seven-part series about a 2005 homicide that happened near the University of Texas at Austin. The murder of 21-year-old Jennifer Cave, who was shot, dismembered, and left in a bathtub at her friend Colton Petoniak's apartment, continues to haunt the area to this day. Like the Burger Chef murders, this case features plenty of twists and turns, including Colton's flight to Mexico with another UT student, Laura Hall. Both were later convicted in connection with the crime, although Colton has continued to appeal his verdict and claim innocence. The business student turned convicted murderer now says that he doesn't even remember much about the night Jennifer died. The Orange Tree is reported on and produced by Haley Butler and Tanu Thomas, who were both seniors at the University of Texas when they started this project. Together, Haley and Tanu strive to piece together this tragic story in an in-depth podcast that features audio from courtroom scenes and interrogation rooms, prison phone calls, and exclusive interviews with both the perpetrators and the victim's family. You can binge all seven episodes of The Orange Tree today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's R-O dot C-O slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, back to the murder sheet. Now, let's get into two of the biggest questions we get asked about this case. Why is it still unsolved? And how can we change that? Answering the first question, why did the Burger Chef murders go unsolved, is complicated. We're not looking to criticize 1978 law enforcement tactics based on modern investigative procedures and technology. 
Things like DNA analysis were still a ways off back then. Nonetheless, the sloppiness of the Speedway Police Department is perhaps the biggest reason this case went unsolved. The incompetence demonstrated by that department went far beyond anything that could be attributed to hindsight. The lack of drive and caring that this case was shown is immensely frustrating to behold. The Speedway police detective, who apparently allowed the burger chef to be cleaned up after the disappearances, was later revealed to be an alcoholic who was forced to resign after he killed a woman with his car. The Speedway police chief was a disaster at the time, dealing with outright rebellion among the force's rank and file. Speaking to people familiar with the situation, one gets the sense that the murders prompted a collective shrug from the Speedway police. But the Speedway police weren't the only agency to bungle a crime scene here. Forces from Marion County, Johnson County, and the state police convened on the murder site in Johnson County, potentially destroying evidence in the process. We've heard of at least one crime scene technician who carelessly handled the victim's Burger Chef uniforms. It is fair to say that crime scenes were processed differently in the 1970s. But it doesn't appear that basic care was taken with either the abduction site or the murder site. And the result has been 42 years of pain and uncertainty for the families of the four young victims. The Burger Chef case is still open with the Indiana State Police. Since the 1990s, the ISP has assigned the case to a single lead detective. First, Stoney Van, then Bill Dalton. We appreciate the efforts of these investigators, who both seem to care deeply about the case and the victims. But these men have both had administrative duties on top of the case. We can't help but feel that the Burger Chef case, and other cold cases like it, would benefit from the establishment of a cold case unit. When we speak to people in Indiana about the Burger Chef case, so many cling to this idea of the good old days. That, back in the day, violent crime simply didn't happen. This is a form of selective blindness, and it's simply untrue. Look at the cold cases that occurred in Indiana in the 1960s and 1970s and the 1980s. The good old days start to look like they were engulfed by a wave of violence, one that washed through Indianapolis, the state of Indiana, and the United States as a whole. To act as if the Burger Chef murders represented the end of innocence for Speedway, or Indianapolis, or Indiana, is to ignore all the crime and drugs and violence that marked that time. It also gives a pass to the leaders tasked with keeping the community safe back then, who utterly failed. We're not alone in seeing the pattern of horrific unsolved cases in Indiana from that time. In 1977, veteran crime reporter Larry Incolingo spoke to the Richmond Palladium Item about a recent murder. What I fear most is they'll soon get tired of a stagnant investigation, drop it, and go on to something else. That would be a sad and terrible thing, Incolingo said. He was talking about the disappearance of 20-year-old Indiana University student Anne Harmeyer. She vanished on September 12, 1977, about a year and a few months before the Burger Chef murders. Anne was driving back to Indiana University when her car broke down on Route 37, two miles north of Martinsville. Sometime after that, Anne disappeared. Here's Scott Burnham, Anne's cousin. He was only 10 years old when she vanished. 
because her body was found uh, about five weeks later, um, about five miles east of where her vehicle had stalled. And a farmer who was um, cutting down his uh, corn crops had come across her, her body. Her purse was nearby. Uh, one of her shoelaces was used to tie her hands around her back, and the other was tied around her neck. And uh, after she was raped, her assailant used uh, her hairbrush to twist the knot around her neck so uh, she would uh, come to the uh, asphyxiation uh, more quickly. Her brutal killing remains unsolved, although, like in the case of the Burgershev murders, a number of suspects have arisen over the years. Speaking to the Palladium item in 1977, Inkalingo pointed out that multiple women had vanished in the Bloomington area throughout the 70s, with little progress on their cases. Here's what he had to say. There is something missing in our investigative process here when all these girls can disappear and never be found. It makes me sick. Christ, I feel these kids are entrusted to us, this community, by some implied contract when they come down here. We've got to be responsible somewhere. Today, Scott is doggedly researching Anne's murder. We'll include a link to the Facebook page dedicated to his cousin's case in the show notes. Scott says he's struck by the fact that there were so many unsolved murders in Indiana, especially unsolved rape murders of young women. By his count, there are over 400 unsolved killings on the books in Indiana, and also a backlog of untested rape kits. There were so many women who were murdered, raped, and assaulted, and not only was there an inordinate number of victims, but there appeared to be um, an extraordinary number of unsolved cases. Scott is now pushing legislation that would allow the state police to form a cold case unit to tackle older, unsolved cases. Burnham said that the state police have been receptive to the proposal, and we're thrilled by that. We believe that the Burgershev case, along with all Indiana cold cases, would benefit from the formation of such a squad. A lot of large police institutions around the country have implemented permanent cold case squads with success. We personally feel that not only would a cold case unit be a boon to the family of victims and society as a whole, but it would be a great chance for state police to partner experienced investigators with rookies to allow for hands-on investigative training. We hope that this legislation receives the support and bipartisan backing it so richly deserves. Let's revisit what Incolingo said all the way back in 1977. The community... Police, reporters, politicians, and everyday civilians owes it to the victims of violent crimes to work to solve these cases. If so many cases are allowed to go cold, then something is indeed missing in our investigative process, and that needs to be corrected. Budgetary issues shouldn't hinder the investigation of heinous murders and rapes. Political considerations shouldn't block families off from receiving long-awaited answers about their loved one's murders. Anybody who cares about justice in the state of Indiana should be on board with dedicating resources towards elevating these unsolved mysteries. We have the good fortune to encounter many people like Scott, people who are concerned with justice and finding the truth. We believe that this is why the story of the Burgershev case has resonated with so many people. 
Around 4,000 people have joined Facebook groups dedicated to the Burger Chef case. These individuals discuss the case every day online, debating key theories and turning up new leads. And the moderators responsible for the groups facilitate keeping this conversation alive. Retired ISP detective Todd McComas ran four episodes on the Burger Chef murders on his 1041 podcast. You can hear our conversation with him in the episode, The Robbers. Ashley Flowers of Crime Junkie covered the story of the ongoing investigation in Red Ball. The murders have even attracted attention from around the world, including from Australian documentarians Adam Kamian and Luke Rinderman. And you, you listening to this show right now, have all cared enough to go on this deep dive with us. We appreciate you for listening. Next week, we'll be doing a Q&A on the Burger Chef case, so please send your questions to murdersheet at gmail.com. Sometimes, we think about what Jane, Ruth, Danny, and Mark would have been doing now had they not been killed. Their memories are also never far from the minds of their surviving family members and loved ones. Here's Teresa Jeffries, Ruth's younger sister. She told us about living with the daily reminders of her older sister. My neighbor has Lily of Valley across the street, and that always reminded me of when we lived on Lupine, and there was Lily of the Valley that grew beside the house. And Ruth had asked me to pick one of, some of the flowers because she wanted to put it in her hair. And so that in my mind, became her flower then. While we'll be wrapping up our coverage of the Burger Chef case by answering some questions next week, we will continue to work on the case and others just like it. When we receive updates, we will share them with you. And we will never forget what happened to Jane and Ruth and Danny and Mark. Before we go, I'll share one story with you. In the fall of 2019, I visited Indiana for the first time to research the Burger Chef case. During my trip, Kevin and I visited St. Christopher, the Catholic church in Speedway, Indiana. It's a little church located on West 15th and Lynnhurst Drive, just up the road from Speedway Police Headquarters. A short walk away from the spot where Jane's Vega was found on the morning after the disappearances. It was November then. In the Christian tradition, November is the month of the dead. St. Christopher had set out a book of remembrance and invited congregants to write the names of the deceased within its pages. Anya and I approached the book and wrote out the four names, Jane Freet, Ruth Shelton, Daniel Davis, and Mark Flemons. We will never forget. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet Presents, You Never Can Forget. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast or by searching Murder Sheet. For exclusive content like bonus episodes and case files, become a patron of The Murder Sheet on Patreon at patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you enjoyed listening to The Murder Sheet, 
please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Before you go, please stick around to hear from our friend Nina from the Already Gone podcast, a great show you should definitely be checking out. I first learned about the Burger Chef murders from her 2016 episode on the case. Murder, missing persons, unsolved mysteries. Already Gone explores lesser-known cases from Michigan and the Great Lakes region. I'm Nina Instead, the voice behind the Already Gone podcast. Join me for an in-depth look at stories that will have you looking over your shoulder and locking the doors at night. Find Already Gone on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.